Mark 11, verses 27 through 33. Mark 11, verses 27 through 33. This is actually a small section that is very intimately connected to the next 12 verses at the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, But as I wrote this week, I had many, many words, and I thought, we're not going to be here for an hour and a half to two hours. And so uh, this is part one of kind of two parts that really go together and help inform one another. Just gives you a little bit of context. Uh, In the first Avengers movie, it came out a few summers ago. I don't know if any of you saw it, but but I did. Uh, There's a really chaotic scene that features the destruction of many buildings and vehicles and streets and people in New York City. The the mayhem is the result of an alien attack. Uh, All right, just try and stay with me if you haven't seen it. It's sounding really bizarre right now, but aliens are attacking New York City. There's destruction everywhere, and there's this fun little, like, side scene, I don't really know, but during the madness, it's like a comical moment wherein Captain America, he jumps on top of a car and he shouts out orders to two of New York's finest. And one of the the police officers responds with this question. He says, why should I take orders from you? Then in short order, right, as the question is falling out of his mouth, Captain America casually slays a couple of these hostile aliens. And immediately, without any words, the officer looks at him, turns and begins repeating the orders into his little microphone thing, walkie-talkie, so that they're broadcast to all, everybody else on the police force. Very suddenly, the authority of Captain America had become clear, just with the killing of a few aliens. No big deal, right? This this is a guy I need to listen to. It's a similar thing that goes on uh, at the beginning of Batman, The Dark Knight. Some of you have probably seen that too. Uh, There are a few Batman admirers, and they count themselves as vigilantes and so they actually dress up like batman and they go out and they're, they're trying to clean up the streets they're taking on powerful criminals but uh, they're not doing a really great job and there's a scene where upon their failure the real batman shows up he defeats the bad guys and then ties the vigilantes up along with them to kind of turn them in to the police and, and as he's making his exit one of the guys that's dressed up like batman in, in a kind of costume thing asks what gives you the right What's the difference between you and me? And then Batman has this weird, really deep voice in the movies. It's kind of creepy. I don't know, but he's like, I'm not wearing hockey pants. He says, I'm not wearing hockey pants. And it's kind of this funny line and kind of chuckle. But I think the one-liner makes clear the difference between the wannabes and the real Batman. You see, the, the wannabes are pretending to be something that they are not. And they're deriving or getting their authority by relating themselves to Batman. And so their authority comes from the symbol that Batman has become. Whereas Batman is the real deal. His authority is the authority behind the symbol. His authority is not derived but essential to his person. The authority he carries is part and parcel to what it means to be Batman. Likewise... Jesus' authority is essential to his person. It's part and parcel to what it means for him to be God. He has all the power of God because he is God. As Hebrews puts it, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. During Jesus' ministry, his authority is repeatedly made clear to those who might ask him, what gives you the right, or why should I take orders from you? 
I mean, to this point in Mark, we've seen Jesus bind Satan, who is the strong man of chapter 3. We've seen him forgive sin, claim supremacy over the Torah and the Sabbath. We've seen him heal the lame and the leprosy. leprous. We've seen him give sight to the blind. We've seen him still a storm and walk upon the sea. We've seen him cast out demons and more. His authority is clear to everybody who encounters him. Jesus does what only God can do. And this authority is, is a delight to many as they follow him, but it's despised by others because they can't do those same things. The religious leaders of Jesus' day belong to the uh, not-so-happy group. They see him as a threat to their power, to their status, and out of a desire to protect their idols, which for them is power, prestige, they look for a way to kill the God-man. So that's kind of what's going on in our, in our text today. The religious leaders are going to try to get Jesus to step into a trap that they've set for him. They're going to ask him this question, who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? And what gives you the right? And Jesus is going to answer their question with a, a pregnant question of his own that makes some implicit claims, as well as tell the story that we'll see in the twelve verses, first 12 verses of chapter 12. And, and what he's going to do with this question and this story is he's going to expose the hockey pants of the religious leaders, if you will. He's going to expose the fact that their authority is derived from God and can be easily taken away by God. He's going to also reveal to them his divine identity. And so I've tried to summarize the main idea of this text for us today is Jesus' divine authority is clear. It's essential to his person and it's rejected by his enemies. His authority is clear essential to his person and rejected by his enemies. And then our, our one big thing this morning, or that application which I would love for you to make to your life as you meditate on this text and pray throughout the week, is for you to honestly deal with Jesus. Honestly deal with his claims. And so five parts today. Five sounds like a lot, but it's not. Five parts. A showdown, a trap, a reversal, a huddle, and a lie. That's kind of how I've summarized it. Let's pray together and then we'll, we'll get into it a little bit. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for uh, the ability to gather here in your name. We thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. Thank you that you've called us together to be your people, to be members of your kingdom. And we pray that we would love one another well and display your glory in so doing. Father, we pray that this fellowship would be an attractive one to outsiders and one that builds up and strengthens the faith of saints. Lord, be present with us today. Use each one of us and each one of our gifts to encourage one another, to strengthen your people. Lord, we are imperfect and we are in desperate need of your power this morning. So we ask by hand of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring us to life, help us to experience you as we think about and listen well to your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. Now, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And so to, to give us a little bit more context here, the previous day, Jesus had gone into the temple, he turned over tables, and then he had chased out money changers with a whip. And in so doing, he kind of made this claim that he was in authority over the temple. 
Religious leaders don't like that claim, right? He's diminishing their role. He's saying, I'm greater than the temple. And so this day, it's the next day, it started out as usual. They're making a commute into Jerusalem because it's really full, and so people are staying with family and friends. Some are even pitching tents in fields. And they're making their way into Jerusalem and back into the temple because it's Passover week, and that's what you do during Passover week. You go to the temple. And during this commute, Peter notices that the fig tree Jesus had cursed the previous day was withered. And we talked about that last week, how the fig tree represented the temple. It had all the signs of fruit, but, but was actually dead. It had no fruit. We, we likened it to a Krispy Kreme with nothing but kale inside rather than donuts, if you remember, right? The signs of life, but only death inside. And so, Jesus explains this withered fig tree. He says, have faith in God in verse 22. That was kind of a key verse. And and what he's doing is showing us the difference between what a fruitful disciple looks like, where a fruitful disciple has their faith, which is in Jesus, versus where the religious leaders or somebody that are just pretenders or wannabes, where their faith is. It's typically in themselves or, or in their idols. And so now they've arrived again in Jerusalem, and they're walking through the temple. And these Jewish religious leaders whom Jesus has offended come to him. And, and don't get it wrong, this is not a, it's not a casual meeting. The reps of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they're, they're not just randomly bumping into Jesus at the gas station or at Starbucks. In my imagination, as you might be able to tell by the title, it's a little bit like an old western showdown, minus the 10-gallon hats and the guns. See, instead of carrying guns and being dependent upon a quick draw, uh, Jesus and the religious leaders are going to face off in a rhetorical battle and be dependent upon their logic and their quick thinking. Maybe not as exciting to you as guns. But anyhow, that's what's going on. And so here in the morning, if you want to picture it with me, the, the shadows are creeping across the temple stones The sun is taking its place in the sky, and the religious leaders come to the temple to pray, not to God, but upon Jesus. They're hunting him, seeking a way to destroy him, and they think they've come up with a perfect plan to ruin him. They come to Jesus not to learn about him, but to try and trap him. They want to discredit him. They want rid of him. They don't like that Jesus' authority carries a weight that their own teaching does not. We've seen that throughout Mark. Jesus teaches with authority. The people are astonished at his authority. They're amazed at his authority. Over and over and over again, his authority is raised high in contrast to the typical teaching. They don't like that Jesus is teaching with authority or that his teaching is calling their own lives into question. Jesus has interrupted the path that they were on. He's interfered with their system of self-salvation. He's interfered with the object of their faith, which we pointed out last week was in their religious activities, doing all these things and therefore meriting favor with God. Jesus is saying that doesn't work. You're like the fig tree. You're cursed and dead. What you need to do is have faith in God. And so they're confronting him here because he's confronted them the previous day. And I think, too, one of the observations I made is that we all kind of live according to a system of of self-salvation. Everybody lives for something. And uh, there's usually three systems. There's the religious system, which says something uh, akin to you get salvation or you find meaning in life by keeping all the rules. That's what most of us religious folks are prone to. Then there's the irreligious system that says if God exists, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, uh, he loves everybody just the way they are, and so 
Uh, Just be you and don't worry about the rules. See, the gospel says you get salvation or meaning in life by turning from your own wrongdoing and putting your faith in what Jesus has done, therefore following his rules out of an affection. See, the gospel torpedoes both systems because it says you have to put your faith in Jesus rather than in yourself for your salvation, for your meaning in life. Man is not the measure of all things. Jesus is. It says that love for Jesus is expressed by a growing and affectionate obedience to his word rather than a cold-hearted, obligatory obedience. And so the gospel requires the religious person who finds meaning in good works and in their own rule-keeping to repent of their imperfect self-righteousness and instead trust in Jesus' perfect righteousness. And the gospel requires the irreligious person who finds meaning by living according to their own self-created rules and standards to give up their way of living and submit to Jesus' way of living. Both the religious and the irreligious person, they actually share the same root cause of sin. They they both don't trust God's goodwill to them. You see, the, the legalist or the religious person, it stems from the belief that they will have to pry blessing out of God's cold hands, begrudging he is. He's unwilling. And so they have to perform all these observances and duties in order to procure the blessing of God. Likewise, the the antinomian or the irreligious person, they assume that that God is ungenerous, that he's grasping, that he's hard. They don't think that his commands could possibly be given for blessing or for benefit, and so they just cast them off altogether. It's the only difference between the religious person is that between the two, the religious person takes on the burden of keeping the rules whereas the irreligious one just ignores them altogether and comes up with their their own system. In actuality, both of them, the religious and the irreligious, are putting their faith in themselves, just whatever system they've chosen. I'm putting my faith in my ability to keep the rules, or I'm putting my faith in my ability to make up my own rules and keep them. Both are outside of the saving grace of God. You see, the Christian, or somebody that understands the gospel because of God's grace, understands that the law is an expression of God's love. And so they seek to keep the law knowing it's designed to bring about their deepest joy. See, they know Jesus, they know they're accepted in God because of what Christ has done, and as a result, their obedience flows from that. Who they are flows from, sorry, what they do flows from who they are. So fruit is being born. I think that's one of the fun things about the church. Like This is not a gathering of the nicest or the most virtuous people, right? No offense. Uh, We're not the best people. Struggling sinners. It's not. We're not the best people in the world. It's a gathering of people that struggle with legalism, struggle with lawlessness. We struggle with falling prey to religion or irreligion. We struggle with keeping our faith singularly devoted to Jesus Christ. This is a gathering ultimately of people that need Jesus, not just once in our life, but every day. It's a gathering of people that have daily committed to waking up in the morning and saying, God, I will pick up my cross and follow you today. So I just ask in passing, which system would the gospel call you to give up? Which are you more prone to, religion or or irreligion? I think the religious leaders obviously fit into this religious system. They've always found their worth and founded their identities upon keeping the law. They've kept the rules, they think. Therefore, they think they're acceptable to God, and Jesus has interrupted this. 
It's breaking apart the framework of their lives by teaching that not only will their good works not make them right with God, but that their good works, because they are done with selfish motivation and apart from Christ, are an affront to God. Basically, Jesus has stepped in and said, you are wrong. You need to put your faith in God. You need to stop doing things your way and start doing them God's way. And this is why they are coming to him for this showdown. They are offended. They need to be done with Jesus. They need to get rid of Jesus. He's challenging everything. That's why they're hunting him. They approach Jesus not to learn about him or his authority, but to challenge him, to kill him. Many curious about how I approach Jesus. How, how do you approach Jesus? Do you come as somebody with legitimate questions about his authority and his power, about the scripture, or, or as somebody that's kind of just angry? Angry at him for saying things that you don't like. Maybe things that are opposed to your own political or social or personal views on the world. Do you come to Jesus ready to learn or, or as somebody who's angry at him for challenging your preferred way of life. Religious leaders come angry. They come to set a trap, which we see in verse 28. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Let me translate this real quickly. Who do you think you are? Right, uh, N.T. Wright likened this to uh, a random person maybe being in D.C. around the Beltway. There's really big traffic congestion. Just a random person getting out of their car and directing traffic, and then traffic starts to flow really smoothly. And the real police show up and go, who are you? What gave you the right to, to direct the traffic? Where did your authority come from? That's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is coming to the temple. He's redirected everything. And now the authorities of the temple are saying, who do you think you are? And they ask Jesus this question for a specific purpose. You see, if Jesus admits that he didn't go through the typical temple channels, isn't a certified authority, he'll be discredited. See, if he admits no formal theological training, then people will be discouraged from following him. You might want to think of it this way. Uh, If you were at your doctor's office and some medical board showed up and said, your doctor actually never finished medical school, right? You're getting ready to go in for surgery maybe. Not a surgeon, (laughs) a little unorthodox. He just kind of declared himself to be a surgeon and he opened this little business and you're here to have surgery, but he's not certified. You're probably going to maybe find a different doctor, maybe not get the surgery. That's the same idea here. Jesus is unaccredited. Now, if Jesus makes another claim and says, not only do I have authority, but my authority is higher than yours. I have divine authority. The religious leaders know that they're going to just charge him with blasphemy. He knows they're going to charge him with blasphemy. They'll arrest him, and they'll start the process that we see play out here in a few chapters when Jesus goes to the cross. These guys know who Jesus is. They're trying to outsmart him. They think they can dethrone him by humiliating him. And I think, really, we find out they're dead wrong. Just as an aside, friends, uh, take it on faith that you cannot outsmart God. He uses even the most brilliant and most diabolical plans for his purposes. You might come to Jesus, as the religious leaders did, with your own agenda. But trust me, he will always pursue you with his. No one can color outside of the lines of God's providence. 
but the religious leaders think they have Jesus on the ropes. They think he's about to step into their trap, and I imagine with a smile and a wink, they're awaiting his reply. But then Jesus flips the script on them in verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. I love that little answer me. It's like a little extra punch to it. Answer me. He probably didn't say it like that. But I think this is kind of, I think of Looney Tunes right now at this point in in the the narrative. Uh, It's a little bit Wile E. Coyote in the Roadrunner, right? In the cartoons, Wile E. Coyote always tries to catch and subsequently eat the Roadrunner. Tries to destroy the Roadrunner, but he's never, ever successful. He has all those absurd and complex contraptions, and they never work. He always pursues the Roadrunner, and the plans just comically backfire on him, and they usually result in his own injury, right? Anvil falls on him, gets caught in something. It's the same thing that happens here, right? The religious leaders have come up with a question they thought would trap Jesus. I love the Looney Tunes too, man. We can talk about it later. The religious leaders, they've come up with this question, and they think they can trap Jesus like Wile E. Coyote. But Jesus is a little bit quicker than they are. He's a little bit like the roadrunner. And their trap is going, they're going to be caught in their own snare, right? Jesus' question about John's baptism here, it's, it's wet with significance. He's indicating that he has the same source of authority that John had prior to his death. And see, here's the thing. Everybody knew that John was a prophet from God. John had said of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He told everybody, One greater than myself is here. He must become greater. I must become less. Remember he said, After me, talking about Jesus, is one who comes mightier than I am, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, we read earlier in Mark about Jesus' baptism. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. Keep that phrase in your back pocket. Beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The religious leaders knew John was a prophet before Herod took his head, and they know Jesus is a prophet before they crucify him. How you're saying, well, how, do you, how are you sure they know? Uh, a lot of things, but one of the ones I want to point out is down in verse 33, Jesus is going to say, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And that's kind of tongue-in-cheek, if I'm using that correctly, because he's going to turn around in this parable in, verses, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 12, and he's going to tell them exactly who he is. If you want to look at that real quick, we're not going to get there till next week. Uh, he, what he does in this parable is he inserts himself into the parable because he's telling a parable about wicked tenants and these servants that go to collect from him, and everybody corresponds to something. It's a little allegorical in that. The servants end up being the prophets that came before Jesus, and then he says, but the, the landowner has one more to send, his beloved son. Now, see that key phrase, beloved son, and that should hearken us back to Jesus saying that John's baptism is from heaven and point us, the reader, back to chapter 1 where Jesus is called the beloved son of God. And for me, if you're familiar with the Bible, it makes you think of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't 
perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is saying, not only do you know who I am, I'm the beloved son, but you are the wicked tenants. You are trying to kill me. That's what's going on in that parable. We'll talk about it more next week because it's really interesting. But for me, one of the other things that comes up with this phrase, beloved son, is the Genesis 22 account. Every time, I can't help but think about Abraham going to the top of the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, his one and only or his beloved son. And what happens up there is he discovers a, a ram caught in a thicket as he raises the knife to slay his son in accord with God's command. God says, Abraham, Abraham. And I love this. He said, oh, hold on. I heard an old preacher preach that once, and I just loved the way he said I can't do it as much. He said, don't lay a hand on the boy. You know, like, he just laid it down and said, like, that's how I always read that text. He says, don't lay a hand on him. Don't slay him. And then he finds the ram or Isaac's substitute there. And the ram substitutes for Isaac and it kills the, lamb, or the ram in his place. And he's right with God. And God says this to Abraham. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He says, because you were willing to give up your one and only son, I know that you love me. And what that makes me think of here is Jesus is referred to as the beloved son. See, he's the beloved son that goes up the mountain, but he has no substitute because he is the substitute for our sins. He dies in our place so that we can say to God what he said to Abraham. God, I know you love me because you gave up your one and only son for me. That's what the cross tells us. It tells us, John 3, 16, that God loved us. It's a beautiful thing. And this word, beloved son, I, I hope that if you follow Christ, it conjures all those images up into your mind, and it thrills you and drives you into a deeper worship of who God is and what he's done. His love is so deep. Religious leaders recognize Jesus' authority, but they reject him because they refuse to accept a God who contradicts their current way of life. We, we've said this many times before, but it warrants repeating. If your God, small g, cannot contradict you, then it's very likely that you are worshiping yourself and not the true God of the universe. If your God cannot contradict you or correct your own thinking, it's very likely that you're worshiping yourself and not the true God of the universe. Religious leaders are contradicted by the true God's teaching, and they cannot tolerate it. So they ignore his authority, which is obvious to everyone. It's clear from what we've read in Mark. They ignore it the same way they ignored John's authority. Which the similarities between John and Jesus are quite striking. Like John, Jesus came preaching a message of repentance. And like John, he bypassed the temple and the official channels in order to carry out his ministry. And like John, Jesus is going to be unjustly murdered. Even though the religious leaders recognize his authority, they refuse to acknowledge it. So Jesus lays this question on John's baptism. It's a loaded question, right? Was it from heaven or from earth? From God or from man? And this is what they do, verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they held that, all held that John was really a prophet. And I picture this a little bit in Family Feud, if you've ever watched that, or one of those panel shows where all the people huddle up and discuss their answer before they give it. It's comical to me. Jesus asked this question. It's like, one minute, Jesus, we're going to come over here. Uh, what do you guys think? Drawing up a play like for football in the dirt. What do we do here? He's got us in a tight spot. Because the logic goes a little bit like this. 
everyone thinks or knows that John the Baptist was a prophet of God. Therefore, his baptism was authoritative and from heaven. If we acknowledge that his ministry was from God, we're going to have to answer for why we didn't believe him, and we're going to look pretty foolish. But on the other hand, if we say that his ministry was not from God, then we will lose favor with the people. They're not going to like us. We love our power. We love our prestige. Notice what's missing from their conversation. No one is going, hey, you think, you think John the Baptist was legit? Do you think it's possible that Jesus' authority is, is from heaven? you think it's possible John's authority was from heaven? They're not considering the claims. They're looking for a way out of the question. See, the problem for the religious leaders, it's not the evidence about who John was or who Jesus is. It's about their unwillingness to accept the truth about John and Jesus. It's the unwillingness to accept the truth about what it would mean for their lives. Because if Jesus' claims are true, then their fears of losing control and power are going to be realized. They will have to submit themselves to Jesus' authority. If they follow Jesus, everything in their lives, which, by the way, if you didn't know, they're going pretty well, right? They've got lots of good things. Got prestige and power and money. Things that we like as Americans, right? We typically like these things. They're, they're not terrible. Everything about their lives, if they follow Jesus, is going to change radically. They might be able to hold on to some of those things, but the stewardship will definitely change. Likewise, for so many people today, the problem is not the evidence about Jesus, but their unwillingness to accept the evidence. I think the real issue underneath the issue is the idols of the human heart are very real. I think the way contemporary people utilize logic is similar to the religious leaders. They say to themselves, if I accept Jesus, that he's the son of God who died for my sins and was raised from the dead, then my life will never be the same. But I like my life. I use this analogy all the time. Uh, my, my friend Nathaniel was at a Christian camp, and he had one of the young teenage kids come to him and say, I want to follow Jesus but I don't want to give up Nelly, who was a, a popular rap artist at the time. And he, the kids saw what some of us don't see so clearly. He saw that some things about his life were going to have to change, but he liked those old things. Say, same thing's going on in most of our hearts. I like my life. I don't, don't want to change. I think I've got it pretty good. I'm finding fulfillment for now in other places. Choosing to ignore the claim of Christ on your life because you don't want to change, it's not new, it's not unique to us. And I always think of the words that Abraham speaks in one of Jesus' stories in Luke 16. Uh, he says this to a man who's in hell. He's crying out, Lazarus, I believe. He says, let me just go and, and send somebody to my family. Tell, tell them that they might believe in you. I was wrong to, to reject the gospel my whole life. And this is what he says, if they don't listen those that are still on earth, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. That's the way of our hearts, isn't it? Kind of like all we talked last week about uh, the desire maybe Peter had. He could have chosen to explain away the fig tree. Well, it was here overnight. We were sleeping. Jesus came. He picked up the old fig tree, put the dead one in its place to trick us and make us think he did a miracle. It's not real tempted to explain things away so that we can continue to live according to our own plans, according to our own desires, according to our idols. We really do desire to be our own authority. 
And when the rule of our lives is challenged, we do whatever it takes to justify ourselves, even if it means ignoring evidence as compelling as Jesus rising from the dead. And so if there are non-Christians here, or maybe just doubting Christians or nominal Christians, the question is, have you dealt with Jesus? Maybe even for, for real Christians, you haven't devoted yourself to him entirely. Have you dealt with Jesus? Have you considered the evidence of his resurrection? What it means for you? The religious leaders want to be right, and they want to be loved by the people. To do both, they cannot affirm or deny the source of John's ministry, and so they give that classic answer of, I don't know. Look at verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I mean, this is like kid hand in the cookie jar, out of the cookie jar. Where'd you get that cookie, mister? I don't know. I don't know. Like, we know where you got the cookie from, man. And see it. I don't, it's such a lame response. It's not true. They, they recognized John. They recognized Jesus, but they reject them both. They can see that Jesus has divine authority, yet they're choosing to ignore the truth. Very rings of Romans 1, they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie that they would rather believe. And instead of answering honestly here, they conjure up what I'll call a convenient lie. Friends, we should always prefer truth to convenience. Do you prefer truth to convenience? I think it's a relevant word for us in our culture as it becomes increasingly hostile to Christ and his followers. It's very easy to just you know, give in and say, well, maybe the Bible doesn't say this or that. Maybe I should just go with the flow of things. It's becoming less and less convenient to be a Christian in America, and I think that's a good thing. Because following Christ was never meant to be easy. It was never meant to be convenient, and it was never to be the means by which you got further or higher status in culture. This nominal Christianity that exists in our country, it's been dead for a long time. It's been teetering, and it's time that we let it topple. It's time that we allowed God to demonstrate through his people that there is a bright line that divides God's people from the rest of the world. For too long, we've gone, where Maybe we're the light of the world, but we're just like you. We want to be just like you. With the, the decisions that have come down from the Supreme Court and, and the way that the tides are going, it's going to become very clear who you are and whether or not you will prefer the truth of God to the convenience of just going with the flow. You're, you're going to be called out and berated for saying, I stand with God on this or that issue. Are you willing? Do you really love the truth? Or might you, like these guys, come up with a convenient lie or some clever saying so that you're not marginalized, so that you can avoid suffering? Christianity has always been about suffering. It's always been about picking up your cross and entering through the narrow way. It's been about following God. The necessity of doing the hard thing and holding fast to the truth cannot be overstated. For if we loosen our grip on the truth, we risk losing the gospel that saves altogether. Church, do not accept easy and popular opinions because they will win you the applause of the crowds or get you likes on Facebook. 
Don't celebrate the rejection of truth in favor of lies or rebellion against God's authority in favor of what is fashionable for the moment. Study God's word and submit to it. It's especially important in an age where false teaching flows so consistently not only from the public square, but from the pulpit. You must evaluate the validity of every opinion by the word of God, especially opinions from religious leaders. I mean, the source of a person's paycheck does not ensure that they are right or that they're trustworthy. Take up the word, read, and prefer the truth to convenience. Don't don't let popular opinion determine your theology. Follow Jesus. Confession of ignorance on the part of the religious leaders reveals that they, despite their positions, have no basis on which to assess Jesus' ministry. They say, we don't know because they don't want to know. They reject Jesus' authority. They refuse to give up the lordship of their own lives. They love and live for the power they have as the result of their careers. Their authority is derived directly from their position as religious leaders. It's a borrowed authority, and Jesus will soon take it back and give it away to others. By seeing Jesus' authority, hearing Jesus' words, and refusing him, the religious leaders harden their own hearts and run towards their own ruin, as Jesus will soon make evident in the parable of the tenants. To those unwilling to commit themselves to Jesus, he refuses to commit himself. Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Be warned. Hearing God's word is dangerous. The gospel never fails, and it will always soften your heart or harden it. Even now as you listen, your heart is being shaped by the loving hand of Christ or becoming numb to his touch. Don't ignore or dismiss God's word. Hear it. Deal with Jesus. Don't be like the religious leaders who spend a lifetime around the word of God, but harden their hearts to the truth about God, rejecting Jesus and condemning themselves. Is it possible that some of you have spent your entire lives, no matter how old or young you are, is it possible that some of you have spent your entire lives around the word of God and have not known and loved Jesus? So what gives Jesus the right? Why should you listen to him? His authority is divine. He's the beloved son of God and authority is essential to his person. Also, he rose from the dead to prove it. Unlike the religious leaders, Jesus' authority is not derived from a higher power. He is power. Use the earlier illustration, Jesus is Batman and these guys are just wearing hockey pants. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Word of God, and He is very God of very God. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. That's power. He's all-powerful, but He made Himself to be powerless so that we might enjoy life together with Him. He became powerless so that He might be a propitiation for our sins. He has all authority, and He uses that authority not to serve Himself, but to serve His sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. That's power. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus Christ submitted himself to death for your sins and revolted against the grave for your life. Jesus died that you might die, and he lives that you might live. When you're united to Jesus by faith, everything that is true of him becomes true of you. His death is your death. His life is your life. Do you realize that? That when you come to Jesus by faith, the worst case scenario of your life, naked, crucified on a cross, is true of you. And the best case scenario of your life, raised from the dead together with God, is true of you. Friends, that's glorious truth. The worst has already happened, and the best is yet to come. Paul's words in Galatians 2.20 are so good. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, don't, don't harden your heart. Don't cling to your chains as you wait on death row in the dungeon that you've constructed by your own sin. Unite yourself to Jesus by faith. Only King Jesus has authority to free you from slavery to sin. That's the good news of the gospel. If I haven't been clear, what the gospel is, the good news is, is that God became a man, lived a perfect life in your place, died a perfect death in your place, and rose to life. So that by faith in him, you can rise to newness of life with him. And that life begins right now, the moment of your conversion. And that's why Jesus commanded his disciples in Matthew 28, Again, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us now. We obey this command so that we might encourage one another into Christ's likeness and also that many might be saved. This is good news. It's why I preach Christ to you. Preach Jesus that you might know him. Be saved from your sins and enjoy eternal life with him. That's what you were created for. To worship God. He's the good and mighty king of the universe. And I implore you this morning. Repent. Give up your authority. Give up your system of righteousness, whatever it is. And submit to the good and mighty king, to his perfect and loving authority. He has the power to give you true satisfaction and to bring you into eternal life. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and for your kindness and for the gospel. Lord, help us to never get over it. Help us to never be able to pick our jaws up off the floor when we consider what it means for the God of the universe, the creator of all things, to humble himself, to be born of a woman, to cry like a little baby in a crib. To submit himself to the evils of men and to die on a cross. Never let us get over the fact that Jesus Christ came, gave up a crown, and gave up heaven so that he could wear a crown of thorns and that we might inherit heaven. Lord, you are the giver of all good things. and We worship you together as one this morning. You are our good shepherd. And we do not want. Amen.